Check, test one, two. Can you hear me okay? I can talk loud. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Thank you so much, uh, Brian. Man, what a privilege it is to preach this morning. Uh, I don't take that lightly. Very thankful for that opportunity. Um, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving uh, this past week. I know um, for many of us, I know for us in particular, it's, it's always hard um, in the holidays when, when there's people who used to be there that aren't there anymore. Um, and I I know that's been rough for us, and I know I trust some of you have probably gone through some of that. I pray that you were comforted and thankful um, for the gospel, even in the midst of some of the pain that can come with the holidays. Um, I love this text this morning, and um, you know, it's funny. It made me think of, as I was preparing this, uh, probably my favorite parenting disciplinary technique. And I know that's a weird spiral out, baby, but uh, let me explain a minute. How many of you have ever heard of the parenting technique known as the get-along shirt? Have you ever heard of the get-along shirt? Some of you bobbing their heads, some people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, um, yeah, my son raised his hand because he has been the recipient of the get-along shirt a few times, um, especially when you live in a house with a daddy who uh, is a little bit bigger than other people's daddies, um, get-along shirts are a plenty. I mean, what a get-along shirt is, is when two siblings uh, are not getting along, you put both of them in one shirt. And um, my son, and particularly my oldest son and my oldest daughter, tend to be um, getting along in the shirt quite often. Um, it's, it's a great technique that you can put them in and say, until you guys can reconcile whatever's going on, you're going to wear this shirt together. Um, so, it's a tactic I've employed with my children. Um, and really, um, it's, it's one of those things where we encourage our children to behave especially and how they treat one another, right? That's why we employ it, because you know as well as I do, oftentimes what happens is when people observe how your children act towards one another, it's a reflection on, do they get away with this at home, right? Um, So we do that because um, in in the home, we want them to be able to not just get along. That, like, you can fake that. But we want them uh, to actually, we want our children to actually love one another. We want them to actually care about each other. Um, And in our text today, we see just how important it is for Christians in the family of God to not only get along, but to thrive in sacrificial love that we have for one another. So as we unpack this, We're going to see that, I think, is sort of the pinnacle point of our text today, Jesus' new commandment. But let's begin in verse 31. It says, when he had gone out, who? That would be Judas, okay? This is 
Picking up right after Jesus has dismissed Judas from our text last week, um, where we see a lot of things happen where the devil enters Judas. Jesus tells him what you're going to do. Go do quickly. He leaves to go and betray Jesus. And now Jesus was talking to those who were truly his. He's talking to his 11 now disciples. And the emphasis of of that intimacy is seen throughout the rest of this farewell discourse in the book of John towards the end. Uh, John 17, particularly in his high priestly prayer, he says this, John 17, 9 to 12, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. As Brian talked about last week, that's why Judas did what he did. It was absolutely his own responsibility. He did these things of his own volition, but it was also that the scripture might be fulfilled. But here we see Jesus is now left with these men, and that excerpt from John 17 is showing this prayer that sort of reveals that intimacy. And he would even go on to say, I pray for those who will yet believe, which includes his body here and now. So the scene is very much set as a more of an intimate, in-house sort of scene. It's his people. So it says, when he had gone out, Jesus said to these people, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now that's interesting because glorification, when we think about that, we think that's like, that's the pinnacle, that's the end, that's the final thing, right? That's when everything is great. It's when everything sad will come untrue, right? But Jesus is saying, now, now I am being glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God glorified in Him. Christ knows that His hour has come. And even on the cross, he will be glorified. D.A. Carson writes about this very text where Christ says this very thing. Now, bringing to a climax a theme developed throughout the gospel, the evangelist makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was in the shame of of the cross. And this is one of those paradoxical Christian doctrines that it just, it's so unlike anything that the world would glorify. It's a dying man. It's a man on a cross, but yet we can say, and Jesus can say, I'm about to be glorified. And you can look back to some of the things he said throughout the Gospel of John. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto my, myself, right? The Son of Man, his, his, um, 
his allusion to Moses in the Exodus. The Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so that all who would look on him would be saved. Jesus is saying, this is about to happen. I'm about to be glorified in this work. And we even sing about it in our songs, don't we? I mentioned, I think, a couple of weeks ago when I uh, got to lead you in, in singing in the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, the most strange but to, strange to the world but precious to us lines is that when we sing, Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. It's, it's so backwards from what the world would consider glory or victory because it's death. And yet Jesus has no problem saying, what I'm about to do, this work that I'm about to do, is victorious, glorious work. Now, as I ponder that this week, church, I, I want to encourage you, think about it. The most glorious, the greatest, most powerful event to ever take place also contained the most unjust suffering of the perfect Son of God. And if you are a Christian, it is because Jesus suffered in your stead. If you are a Christian, then it's also promised that you will suffer, just as the Lord has. As a matter of fact, the very man we're going to analyze a little bit here in a minute, Peter, says in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So for, we could say it like this, for the Christian, suffering is glorious in a weird way, in a paradoxical way for most people. When we suffer, it's not merely tragedy, but glory to be rejoiced in. And it's not an easy concept to walk in, but Christ is our example. And we walk in it by faith. As a matter of fact, in this same discourse in John 16, Jesus will go on to tell us in John 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you that you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So Christ, in his saying, I'm about to be glorified, he's doing a lot of things by saying that. He's not only saying, I'm going to do this work, and it's going to be glorious even though to the world it might look like defeat. He's also saying to us, and you'll see later to Peter in this very text, you're going to follow me in this work of dying and suffering, and it will also be glorious. So we'll unpack that some more as we go. But then he says, not only will I be glorified, he says, not only will Christ be glorified, but the Father also will be glorified in him. Verse 32, it says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This brings to mind Isaiah 49, verse 3, where the prophet says, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Christ being, if, if you've been, any of you have been in our 
biblical theology class, you'll know that that is, Christ is the pinnacle of what Israel was. It was God's working throughout history to bring about this Savior, and He will be glorified. The Father and the Son are both glorified in the work of the cross through wrath and grace. Wrath that was poured out on the sinless Son of God by the Father instead of sinners. And grace given to those sinners who are loved by both the Father and the Son. And given the Son's perfect righteousness in place of the sin that once damned them. So Jesus is letting his inner circle now know I'm about, like my hour has come, the time is here, I'm about to do this work that's going to make everything that you thought even more clear. All of the things that you've thought about from God and His Word, you're going to see all of that come to a point, come to a head, come to a climax at Christ's work on the cross where He would be glorified and the Father would be glorified in this work. Interestingly enough, right after he makes clear these things, and and it tells us that he is going to give a, a new commandment, but the way he gives it, I think, is so important. Look particularly at verse 33. How does he address now his inner circle? Little children little children. This is what he calls them. Now, this is common in John's language. We see it in 1 John throughout the whole book where John's writing, he calls them little children over and over. My children, little children. Um, so it's, it's common to John's writings, but I think it, it's not a stretch for us to see that he got that term from his Lord, that this is what Christ had called them. Now, think about it practically. (laughs) When Jesus says little children, these are grown men (laughs) that he's talking to. We're talking about hairy Jewish men with beards, most likely, right? Men who have been, men who, a lot of them come from more gruff professions, fishermen and and things like that. Jesus himself being a carpenter. Um, You know, we have just this group of grown men, and he's calling them children, little children. And yet, it's very appropriate. You don't see in the text anywhere where any of these guys says, hold up, <laughs> wait a minute, why are you calling me that? They were still early in their spiritual growth to what they should become, surely, but that, is that what that means? Is, it, is he calling them little children because they're young in the faith? I think it seems perpetually appropriate for Jesus to call them little children. But it it implies a lot of things. It implies not necessarily just a youngness in the faith, but just a tender care for his own. It's interesting thinking about this coming from the son, right? It's easy to think about the father calling us children, but now the son is calling us children. It implies a lot of love, care. It implies that sort of Um, closeness, that intimacy. And yet, it also gives us something to think about now because 
I think we also could receive that title very well from our Lord, little children. Let us do that, and let's keep from the pride of viewing ourselves as mature. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to be mature in the faith. We should, absolutely. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to go from milk to solid food and all those other things that the Bible teaches us. Yes, we should do that. Yes and amen. But let us not view ourselves with such pride as to think, I have now arrived and I am no longer a little child. I'm a grown-up in the faith. Thank you. Let's avoid such things and embrace this title Jesus gives to His disciples. Don't let the pride take root in your spiritual growth. But I think it's appropriate to remember Jesus would teach us in Matthew 18 that unless you receive the gospel like a child, you want to enter the kingdom. It, it comes down to this humility. So it's important that we take that as he calls them little children understand that there's implications for us here today, and then he tells them, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me, and you won't find me, just as I said to the Jews, where I'm going you cannot come. Now this is an interesting turn here because Jesus has said these things to the Pharisees and the other people, the crowds that he's dealt with. He's told them that, and it's confused them and made them angry and all sorts of things. He said, where I'm going you can't come. And they're like, where does he think he's going? Who does this guy think he is? He's full of himself. But now he's turning around and saying these things to his own close, intimate disciples. Where I'm going, you can't come. Yet a little while I'm with you. It's provocative in a sense. And you'll see throughout not just this this passage where we look at Peter in a second, but you'll see throughout this discourse, the disciples are having trouble with that statement. You're going to see other disciples go, what do you mean where you're going? We can't come. Why can't we come see you? And then one of them's going, you know what? It's fine. You can do your thing. Show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. There's just all these things that they're tripped up over him saying, I'm doing something. I'm doing this work, this glorifying work he talked about in the beginning, and I'm going somewhere. And where I'm going, you can't come. Now, on one level, I think it's easy for us to look at that as Christians now who have the full unfolding of Scripture before us and go, why, don't, you know, why are they having such a hard time with this? But understand, he had just called them little children. They were his close, intimate disciples. And now he's telling them, I'm leaving you. That's hard. That's a hard thing for them to grasp. It's provocative. But right after he tells them, his inner circle, where I'm going, you can't come, he gives them a new commandment, he says. A new commandment that if we look at it, it looks quite familiar, right? It doesn't look quite as shiny and new as you might think what the word new would imply. He tells them, in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
So this doesn't seem like a new commandment. After all, the, great, the, the second greatest commandment that Jesus tells us is what? That we should love our neighbor as ourselves. The first is that we love the Lord with all of our being. The second, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus didn't make that up on the spot. He's pulling that from the Old Testament. He's pulling that from God's already revealed word. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, just one example of the many times the Old Testament gives this command. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's not new. So what makes it different Because clearly, we're at an impasse there. We have to go, is this actually a new commandment, or is Jesus being untruthful? And if Jesus is being untruthful, then we have a huge problem with our doctrine as a whole. We have an unraveling that will take place if Jesus is not telling the truth. So what does it mean when he says it's new? I think from the text and from study and things like that, the most easily implied new part of this command is the latter half. That you love one another as I have loved you. As Jesus has loved His own, so we are to love one another. In other words, Jesus' love for his own, is now the standard by which we are to love one another. Jesus' own love for his own is now the standard by which we are to love one another. He showed this in a very tangible way in the passage we were in not long ago when he washed their feet. He showed a sort of self-sacrificing love in a tangible way in washing the feet that had a lot more in it than just merely some act of service. It was a stooping, it was a lowering, it was a love that says, I care for you so deeply that washing your feet is not below me. I care for you so deeply that I don't view you in this way that, uh, you know, I I will love you to this point and then no further. It's a love that says, no, I'll I'll get down in the grime and the muck where you're at, at your worst, and I'll love you there. This is the sort of love that he gives us an example of. And then he tells us, he tells his 12, really, or 11 now here, as I've loved you, so you are to love one another. Must remember that Christ loved sinners. And thus our love for one another must be a love that understands we are sinners. You know, as we were talking about some of the gruff nature of these men that he called little children, I'm reminded of his encounter with the apostle Peter early on. And he tells him to cast his net over a certain side of the boat And that just so happens to be miraculously where all the fish are. And Peter's response is to fall down at Jesus' feet and say, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Like this is the kind of people Jesus went out of his way 
to not only love, but make disciples of. As a matter of fact, that's, what, that's how he responds to Peter. When Peter says, you've got to get away from me. I'm too sinful. I'm not good enough for you. His response is, what are you talking about? I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you a disciple maker. And this is how he does it, through his love for the unlovely, through his care for sinners. We must remember If we are to follow in this command, this new command, that Christ is that standard, that our love for one another within the church should not be performance-based, that I'm going to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord as long as they meet up to my standard for what feels good, but that we're going to love our brothers and sisters in the Lord despite even major shortcomings. That doesn't mean we don't call one another to repentance. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with the seriousness of sin that can creep in. That's not what it means at all, but it does mean that we love one another as we have been loved, and we extend that grace as it has been extended to us, and that when I fail you, because I will, that there is love there for me, and that when you fail me, that there is love there for you. If we only love one another when we are at the high points of obedience, then ironically, we're actually being disobedient. If we only love the people who seem to be just nailing it in the Christian life while we neglect those who are struggling, we are being disobedient to the Lord Jesus. We are the ones who are now struggling. We are the ones who are in sin. And Jesus makes this next claim, and this is why his commandment is so important. This is the effect. This is the beautiful eruption that happens from following and obeying the word of the Lord Jesus. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. As the church would go forth from the Great Commission, this was to be its witness moving forward. (laughs) that people would look at Christians and go, see how they love one another. See how they care for one another. See how they don't neglect one another's needs. See how they actually are there when one brother is weeping and one sister is going through the hardest time in their life. See how they love one another. That's the witness to the nations that Christians are to have in our loving one another. It's still what marks disciples today. Guys, it's not buildings or budgets or programs or talents or even one of my favorites, tight theological precision, right? It's not those things that is a great witness to the world. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but that's not what people see and go, yeah, I see beauty in that. It's not those things. It's the love that God's people have for one another as they have been loved by Christ. That is the witness, not merely to our local population, but to the nations itself. That we belong to Jesus. Quickly, <coughs> excuse me, I want to reference 1 John chapter 3. I do want to get to Peter's and Jesus' um, conversation here. But 1 John chapter 3, 
the apostle who wrote this gospel backs this up. 1 John 3, 11-18, he says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And here's that phrase, little children, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, I could spend a lot of time unpacking that. I don't have time for it today. But man, how important, how necessary is our love for one another within the body. I mean, some of the things John said there, they can be pretty sharp. Right? He's even saying, if you don't have love for the brothers, how does eternal life even live in you? How, how can you say that you are saved? It's that serious. So remember, be encouraged. And I want to encourage you as a relatively new member at the fields that we have seen that love in this place. But I want to encourage you to keep pressing into that to not neglect love for one another. As Jesus says, it is so important that it actually marks us out as his disciples to a looking-on world. And then we get to Peter's conversation where Jesus is saying these things. And there's no way of knowing for sure what this looked like played out in real life, but I kind of, I can't help in my head, this is not like, divine revelation. This is just like Colton's thoughts, observations. I can't help but see what Peter says as sort of an interruption. Like, I can't help but see it as like Jesus is teaching, and he's saying these beautiful, wonderful things, and then Peter's just like, hey, hold up. (laughs) Hold up. Go back to that thing where you said that, you know, you're going away and we can't come. I want to talk about that. Hold on. I can totally see that happening. Maybe it didn't happen that way. I don't know. But it does say, Simon Peter said to him, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? There's still a disconnect taking place. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You said that we can't come with you. Jesus, we've been with you for like three years. What, what's about to happen? What's going on? Jesus' statement is clarifying in telling Peter he can't come, because this is what he says to him. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. So Jesus tells him, you can't come right now, but you will come later. Maybe Peter's starting to get the idea a little bit here. We'll see that in what he says here in a minute. But Jesus is saying, hold up, 
It's not your time now. It's, it's mine. You'll come later. And arguably, in my opinion, one of the greatest Bible commentators to ever live, and just so happens you can get his stuff for free everywhere, is Matthew Henry. And he said on, on this passage, believers must not expect to be glorified as soon as they are effectually called, for there is a wilderness between the Red Sea and Canaan. There's still work to do. Peter's job here on earth was not finished. There was much suffering and gospel ministry and joy and triumph left. So Jesus tells him, where I'm going, you can't come. Peter doesn't understand that fully. And then he makes this claim. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Why can't I come with you now? I will lay down my life for you. Which indicates maybe Peter's starting to get the picture that Jesus really is going to die. But him, him saying this, it's such an interesting thing to say because we see it now and we know what happens later. We know what Jesus is about to predict, that he clams up when it comes time, when the pressure's on, that he denies him, Right? So that part of it, you know, we, we see that and we look at that and we kind of go, yeah, right. And there is some truth to that. Obviously, Peter, in this Passover room where everything's chill, everything's cool, and we're hanging out, it's easy to make those kind of statements. And it would later prove that he, he failed in that. But also, if we know church history, we know Peter actually made good on that promise. That he did, in fact, go to the very bitter end for Jesus. But as Matthew Henry said, there was some stuff to go through first. There was some wilderness between the Red Sea and the Promised Land. Jesus predicts Peter's thrice denial before the rooster crows, which means his denial will happen the very same day he said these things. The very same hour he said these things. I want to quickly, as we close out, and trying to be mindful of, of my time, I want to kind of compare and contrast two very important characters here. And I want to go to Luke's gospel to help us do that. But I think it's important as we see these things with Peter that we remember also Judas. And we remember what has just happened with Judas' betrayal. And Peter now being predicted as having a denial of the Son of God. Luke chapter 22. This is Luke's account of what's happening here in John. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34. Peter says, or Jesus says these things to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So that gives us more content. Jesus said, Peter saying, I'm even ready to be locked up with you, right? And then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times that you know me. It's important to cross-reference this because it helps us understand why Peter 
didn't just fall off like Judas did. Because if, if you think about it, Peter did not betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, no. But what he did in his denial of Christ was a betrayal. It very much was a backstabbing action. It was a self-preservation sort of action. Of No, I didn't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. So as we consider these two things, remember this. It's helpful for us to see God's sovereignty in this picture and both Judas and Peter's responsibility. In God's sovereignty, we see from Luke's account that Satan um, had something to do with, with uh, this temptation for Peter, just like he did Judas. See, Satan tempted and entered Judas. There's the difference. Satan tempted and entered Judas and where we just were in John. And the Bible says, it, Jesus says, it happened so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Right? And then Jesus tells us in Luke that Satan also demanded to have Peter. And I, li- I love that picture. I know it's weird when we're talking about the devil, but it says he demanded. I mean, it's kind of like the throwing the fist on the desk, going, give me what I want, demanded to have Peter. He wanted Peter just as well as Judas. And Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. So we could say it even like this, because Peter, Jesus also tells Peter, and when you have turned... Not if, not if you decide that things are going to be better now and you're going to follow me to death like you said. No, when you repent, when you have turned, go and strengthen the brothers. It was certain. So we could even say it like this. Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And Peter repented so that the Scripture might be fulfilled, because Jesus prophesied here that he would, in fact, turn. Jesus specifically prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. Jesus' betrayal was predicted, and Peter's denial um, was predicted. Jesus knew for certain that Judas would betray him. Jesus knew for certain that Peter would deny him. And yet... We see God's sovereign work in those things. But we also see the responsibility of man in these things. Judas acted willingly in his betrayal. He wanted to do what he did. Peter acted willingly in his denial. He did not want to be associated with Jesus anymore because now that could mean bad things for him too. Judas did acknowledge his sin, but he never repented of it. You see him acknowledge it in Matthew 27. He takes the money back to the guys and says, I don't want this anymore. This was wrong. He acknowledges that he was wrong, but he never turned in repentance. He went and hung himself. Peter knew the depth of his sin, and he did repent of it with all his heart and would go on to die for the sake of the gospel. And the beautiful, as we'll get to as we continue pressing through John, we see that beauty happen in John 21, where Peter decides he's just calling it quits on everything. He's going fishing. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, shows up 
They have breakfast in three times. What does Jesus ask Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? To which Peter answers in the affirmative the first two times, and the third time he acknowledges Christ's sovereignty and said, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. And what does Jesus charge to him after every time he says, I love you? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. One could even say back to Luke's gospel, strengthen the brothers. When you have turned, go and strengthen the brothers. Peter's turning came with that charge. And this could also bring us full circle back to the new commandment. When Peter is told by Jesus, go feed my sheep, go and love my people. As we close out today, Jesus' deep love for us is to be received and to fuel our love for one another as a witness to the nations that we belong to him. It's a a glorious thing that he has called us to in loving one another. It's glorious because it makes much of Jesus. It makes so much of him that the world would look on us and see a people loving and forgiving and serving one another in ways that are unthinkable to people who seek vengeance and spite and bitterness all the time. Christian, the way that Christ has loved you so sacrificially is not to be merely received, but to drive you to action in how you love one another. As Christ's body, we're commanded by Jesus to do this. It is a command. And it's so important to the Christian life that Jesus says it is that evangelistic witness to the world that all people will know. So this command is not just a nice thing to do, but it ends up being a proclamation of the gospel itself. But like Peter, we don't do that perfectly all the time. I don't know if you've noticed, okay? Sometimes, within the church, we hurt one another instead of love one another. The beauty of the gospel is that there's more than enough grace in the Lord Jesus to spur us onward whenever we fail at this. Because we will fail at it. There's enough grace, like Peter, that your turning will be certain. That when we fail to obey Jesus' command that he has given us grace upon grace that we might be able to repent and continue walking in love. That's the beauty of this new command as it comes with that promise. This is a new covenant command that is tied directly to the grace of the Lord Jesus. God has a sovereign and powerful get-along shirt, we might say by giving us his spirit and his word that binds us together. And if his spirit lives in us and we submit to the authority of his word, mess up as we might, we will not fall apart in our duty to love one another. Because he is our help. Maybe you're in here today, you don't 
believe these things about Jesus at all. Maybe you would not identify yourself as a Christian. We hope that you see people that love one another as you spend time among us. We hope that you experience that sort of love that moves you to question how, how such things could exist. But I know that the church universal certainly has not always modeled this well. But I encourage you, please know that the love of Jesus for his people is never the problem. It's when we get it mixed up. And if you came among a Christian church looking for absolute moral perfection, I've got news for you. You're going to be severely disappointed in what you find. It's not to say you won't find moral people seeking to live holy lives, but you will find failure. But we hope that what you do see is love, even in the midst of those things. We want to invite you into that love knowing that Christ lived and died and rose for undeserving sinners because of his great love. As a matter of fact, Romans tells us that he died for us while we were yet sinners, which means he didn't look at you and expect you as a sinner to clean yourself up first before he would do that act of love for you. But like the foot washing like Peter and all of his messiness that we've seen today, he does for us the same thing. He gets down in the muck and mire where we are and loves us there and brings us out of it there. He can do that for you today if you will only repent of your sin and believe in the good news. And you'll be included in the family of God for all eternity. So I want to invite you today, come get in the get-along shirt with us. Be a part of this. Jesus is worthy of that. He's glorious, he's good, and he is loving. And so we can also be loving. Let's pray.